Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. My name's Dave. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're thrilled you've come to check out Connect Church. Um, we are, uh, we're actually in a series right now. It's called Finding Your Way Back to God. And I'm going to recap some of the last couple of weeks here in a second. But before I do, I want to start out by telling you a story, a story I read um, uh, a while back, but uh, quite an interesting story. It was about a, a guy who was a, a Navy veteran, and he went to, he's from Davenport, Iowa. He went to the local Publix supermarket to buy his son a birthday cake, because where else would you get a birthday cake but the Publix supermarket? So he went there, he bought a cake, and um, made his way home. When he gets home and he's kind of getting settled, he looks and he realizes he no longer has his wallet. This is a true story. Uh, calls his uh, credit card. Actually, no, he's got his wallet. He can't find his credit card. So he calls the credit card company and says, hey, I, uh, I think I've lost my credit card. I'm hoping it's not been stolen, but could you check for me and put a stop on it if need be? And they said, well, you know, what, what was your last purchase? And he said, I bought a cake at Publix for $20. They said, yep, we see that. They said, now we've seen another charge right after that for two large pizzas extra olives, $40. He's like, no, that's not me. He goes, someone's found my credit card and they're using it illegally. So they said, okay, we'll put a stop on it right now. So he hangs up and then he calls the police. He's like, hey, I, I had my credit card stolen. I think I dropped it at the Publix when I was there. But um, when I called the company, they said that somebody has, has already used it to purchase two large pieces with extra olives. So the police are like, okay, we'll head right there. So the police get there. Um, again, true story. When they arrive, uh, they talk to the guy behind the counter, and he says, yeah, those pizzas are almost ready. They're like, wait, so the guy who ordered them hasn't picked them up yet? They say, no, no. They say, well, who was he? He goes, it's that guy over there. So the police approach this guy and find out that he is indeed the guy who found the credit card and used it illegally, and they place him under arrest. Well, here's where the story gets a little bit weird. This guy that they arrested, his name was Dr. Richard Ludwig. Okay, Dr. Richard Ludwig. There he was waiting for his pizzas. Um, he was a dentist who was just in town visiting that weekend for his son's baseball tournament. This particular dentist, Dr. Ludwig, uh, he had a net worth of two to three million dollars. This was a wealthy dentist. In fact, the arresting officer noted, the newspaper story tells, that the arresting officer noted that he had $250 in cash in his wallet. And yet, for some strange reason, he still took it upon himself to use this credit card that he'd found in the parking lot to illegally buy two pizzas. I read that story, and I could not help but think, that is so weird. I mean, seriously, who on earth would ever do something like that? I'm talking about ordering pizzas with extra olives. I mean, that's just weird. But, but the other part that's weird is the fact that this guy was incredibly wealthy, and for some reason, he had no problem just taking someone else's credit card and using it illegally. You know, we hear about this happening a lot. In fact, there's a, a term for it. It's called identity theft. And maybe you've heard stories about it. Maybe it's actually happened to you. We, uh, we did a series called Identity Theft not too long ago here at Connect because we talked about the idea that outside of the credit cards, you know, social security side of identity theft, we ourselves sometimes get caught up in the trap of having our identity stolen. And when I say our identity, I'm talking about who God created us to be. We talked about a guy in the Bible called Joseph and how he, he was very secure in his identity. He knew who God created him to be. He knew the plan that God had for his life. And he wouldn't allow circumstances or situations to affect that identity. But this morning, I want to talk about that again. 
I want to talk a little bit more this morning about our identity. And what I want to do is frame it in reference to this series that we've been doing called Finding Your Way Back to God. Because over the last three weeks and this morning, and then we're going to finish off this series with one more, um, we're talking about the, the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. That's a very famous story, and lots of people are very familiar with the story, but I think over these last few weeks, we've been able to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it, and not just look at the story, but more so how that story applies to us in our lives. So what we've been doing in this series, Finding Your Way Back to God, is we've looked at what I've called these five awakenings, these five moments in the life of the prodigal son, and actually five moments in our lives too, where, where there is an awakening that takes place. So we kicked off the service in week one, and the awakening we talked about was the awakening to longing. The fact that, that deep down in every one of us, there is a, there's a longing, there's a hunger, there's a desire. I think it's a God-given longing. It could be a longing to, to love or to be loved. It could be a longing to find purpose for our lives. You know, why am I here? What is the reason that I'm on this planet? It could even be a longing to kind of make sense out of things. Why do these bad things happen? Why did this happen to me? That, that person was a good person. Why would, if there's a good God, why would God allow that to happen? Those are the longings that we find inside of us. And, and we looked at the life of the prodigal son and how, you know, he was, he was in a great place in the home of his father, safe, secure, had everything he could possibly want. But he had these longings. What else is out there? What, what else could there be? What am I missing out on? And in the story of the prodigal son, these particular longings, rather than drawing him closer to the father, they took him away from the father. He took his inheritance and off he went and he, he lived a wild life. And it wasn't long before he started to realize that this, this wild living, this lifestyle he was pursuing, it just kind of left him feeling empty inside. There was a longing inside of him to find purpose and meaning and love, but he was looking in all the wrong places, and it was leaving him just with this empty feeling. Maybe we've done that too. And Josh talked about it, didn't he? In the second week, he talked about it kind of leads us to what we call the awakening to regret. Realizing that some of the choices we are making are, are pulling us further away from God and, and actually leading us to a place of regret and disappointment and shame. And we get caught up in what, what we call the sorry cycle, where longing leads to regret, and, and then we find ourselves pursuing longing again, and that leads to more regret, and then more longing, and this cycle, and, and then we'll keep going on unless we'll do something to break that cycle. And that's what we talked about last week, the idea that there's a third awakening, the awakening to help. It breaks the cycle. It comes to that point of saying, God, I need help. I don't want to keep getting stuck in this, this loop that I'm in. I need some help here. And we talked about how last week, that's a very difficult step to take, but it's, it's probably the most important step if we're going to progress in our journey. That idea that we're reaching out saying, I need some help. And we discovered last week that there is help available and that that help has a name and that his name is Jesus. And this leads us to where we are this morning in our fourth awakening. See, last week we talked about the fact that the prodigal son, he came home to the father. And maybe that's where we find ourselves this morning. We've, we've come home. But even though we're home, we're finding out that the journey isn't actually over. Because these awakenings are not just something that happens when we initially find our way back to God. 
Because actually, finding our way back to God is more than just a single life-changing moment, although that for many can be the case. It's actually a life-growing process. And just because we're home, it doesn't mean, does it, that everything is magically fixed. Sometimes, even after we've come home, we can still forget who we are. We can still lose our identity. That's why this fourth awakening that I want to speak about this morning is so important. Because I think it holds the secret to our true identity. You see, do you remember last week we talked, if you were here, we talked about the Father. How much the Father loved the Son. We learned that the Father ran to the Son. When he saw the Son coming home, he ran with reckless abandonment. He was willing to appear completely undignified in front of his peers and his friends and his community to get ahead of that crowd. To get in front of the crowds that were wanting to shame him and to throw his arms around him and embrace him and kiss him. And what a great picture that is. What a great picture that Jesus presents to us in that story of the Father and and that being the same as Father God. Who wants to come out and and get in front of the people who, who we would see in our community that would shame us for our responses. And embrace us and welcome us and love us. But here's the interesting thing of what happened with that son. After all of this, after the son's embrace, after his his kissing, after him, him showing the son how glad he was he was home, even after all of this, listen to how the son responds. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's saying, Dad, stop, stop. I know you're pleased to see me. I know you're saying that you're, you're welcoming me home. But you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've been up to. You're calling me son and you're saying, welcome home, son. But Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. If you knew what I'd seen, if you knew what I'd done, I should be your slave. The father was wanting to embrace and welcome the son home, but the son wasn't having it. He was struggling still in his own identity. He says, Dad, I'm not a son, I'm a slave. Even after seeing his father run, even after being embraced, even after all these unmistakable signs of the father's love and grace, the son's opinion of himself doesn't catch up with his new reality. It doesn't fit his new identity. He still feels like he doesn't belong. You know, as I was thinking about this this week and knowing that I was going to share it, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and I thought of a great example. So check out this movie clip here. Over here you have a desk, a chest of drawers, you have a nightstand, a light, an alarm. Oh, and Sean says all the pro athletes use futons if they can't find a bed big enough, so I got you one of those. Of course, the frame was heinous. It's not about to let that in my house, but I got you something nicer. It's mine? Yes, sir. What? Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bed. Well, you have one now. If you've seen that movie, The Blind Side, you all know the story. It's a great story. It's a true story. The movie's based on a true story of this wealthy southern family, the, the matriarch of whom is played by Sandra Bullock, 
a lady by the name of Leanne Tui. And they take in this high school student by the name of Michael Oa. He comes from a rough background, grew up in the projects, has no real family to speak of. And they bring him in, and they bring him into their family, and they welcome him into their family. And they start to, to raise him as one of their own family members. They help him get through high school. They help him get into college. They help path the way for him one day to actually play football for the NFL. But if you've seen the movie, you'll know that one of the biggest struggles that continues throughout the whole movie is the struggle that Michael has to really come to grips with the fact that he's welcome there. Because he just knows, listen, I, I don't belong here. I know where I've come from. I know who I am, and, and I know who you are, and I see all this, and, and this just doesn't fit. I, I know you're telling me that I'm welcome, but I don't feel like I belong. And when I was thinking about this story that Jesus told and this son, I imagine that that's how he felt as the dad was bringing him back into his, his stately home, into this palace, this, this home that he would have lived in, said, son, all this is yours. He would have felt like, dad, I don't belong even though you're embracing me, my identity is that I feel like this isn't the place for me. I wonder how many of us come in here on a Sunday morning with a smile on our face, but as we look around the room, we find ourselves feeling a little bit more like Michael, that we don't really belong. These thoughts going through our heads, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I'd done, you'd know that I'm not really welcome here. Maybe you found your way to God, but you're left with mountains of pain and regret. In fact, you're, you're so burdened with shame that you still find yourself doubting that God would embrace you. And that's the issue here in this story. You see, the prodigal son in our story, he was filled with shame. It's almost as if shame was the shadow that followed him home. And you know what? I think shame can follow us home too. Shame wants to cast a, a dark shadow over our homecoming. Shame wants us to forget who we are and where we belong. Shame whispers to us, who are you kidding? You don't deserve this. And shame keeps us from embracing our true identity. But like the father in this story that Jesus is speaking about, Father God does know who you are. And he does know where you've been. And he does know what you've done. And Jesus, in telling the story, he wants us to understand how Father God feels based on the response of the Father in this story. And in fact, listen to what the Father did to affirm to his son that he was indeed welcome home. He didn't just embrace him. He didn't just kiss him. He didn't just welcome him home. Listen to what happens next. While the son is still shaking his head in shame, with the thoughts, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, echoing in his mind. Here's what Jesus says the Father cries. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Now, you know, every one of these items had specific significance. Every one of these items told a story. So I want to talk about them this morning as I've brought with me um, some visual aids here to illustrate this. So first up, we'll talk about the robe that the father gave him. This is a pretty nice robe. It looks like there's robes that if you've ever stayed at one of those fancy hotels, I'm sure that's where you stay all the time. These are hanging in the closet. 
The hotels we stay at, we don't have robes in our closet. We sometimes are lucky to have enough pillows for all the members of my family. But uh, I know in some of the nicer hotels, you get a robe like this. And here's what that robe represents. You know, I'm going to just slip it on here real quick. And um, this robe is like, oh, yeah. Oops. That's, uh, that's comfy. I could get my slippers and my pipe out right now and just uh, relax in this robe. Maybe you've got one of these robes. Maybe you went to one of those fancy hotels and you assumed that they were free for you to take. And you've got several of them that you've uh, brought home with you. But these robes, maybe it's a spa. Maybe you've been to a spa day and when you got there, um, you knew that you were going to be pampered and to be looked after and to spoil. And one of the very first things you did was you got into a robe. Because just like um, today, in those times, robes, they represented rest. The robe represented rest. And the father wanted the son not just to have any old robe. He wanted the son to have his best robe. And that's what it would have felt like for the son. Just imagine what it would have felt like for that son to put on what could probably have been his father's robe. One of the best robes would probably have belonged to the father himself. What would it feel like to be enveloped by his father's robe? To realize at that point you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to strive anymore. Everything is going to be okay. This is what home feels like. And now the son can rest. And as Jesus is telling this story to the listening crowd and even to us Today, he's saying, this is what the Father has for you. You know, as well as a robe, um, I put it in one of these pockets here. He also, 50-50, look at that, it's in the other pocket. He also gave his son a ring. He said, get a ring and put it on my son's finger. And that had significance back then as it has done since. Because you know what this ring represented? Maybe you're familiar with um, in the context of a movie like this. Check out this picture here. You remember that scene where the guy has to kiss the Godfather's ring? It was kind of a sign of respect. He was asking for a favor, and, and it involved him kissing the ring of the Godfather. Well, that didn't just happen in mafia movies. That's actually happened throughout history through kings and emperors over time. This ring, the king, when he was wearing the ring, it, it represents authority and respect. And people would honor the ring on the finger. People would kiss the ring because it was a symbol of power. Presenting a ring to someone was a sign of being placed in an office of authority. The giving of this ring transfers from the father in the story to the son all of his power and identity, all of his authority. The son who was broke and penniless now had the father's financial identity. He could leverage it as his own. It would be almost like modern day just dad saying, you know what? Here's the credit card. It's yours. And every parent in the room is like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but that's what he did. And as the son looks at this ring on his finger, he thinks, you know, I'm never going to go without a meal again. I'll never go without a place to sleep. I'll never want for anything again because the ring sealed his identity and it brought him tremendous security. And Jesus was saying, this is what the father has for you. And then finally, the sandals. Got a pair of sandals here to, to kind of represent this. You know, sandals in that culture would have been a, a symbol of acceptance. 
Because in an ancient Jewish home of that time, the only people who would wear sandals in the house were the homeowners. The slaves and the servants, they'd go around barefoot. So to have sandals and to be given sandals to wear automatically put you in a position of authority. And I can just imagine, you know, the son running home shoeless, coming to his father destitute, looking more like a servant than a son. And the father giving him these sandals, saying, welcome home. You're not a slave. You're my son. We're family. And again, Jesus was saying, this is what the father has for you. These three gifts, the robe, the sandals, the ring, they were given the the truth about the identity of the son. It was the father's way of saying, listen, you're not a loser. You're not a stranger. You're not a slave or a hired hand. You are my son again. You are part of the family. This is your new identity. And Jesus, in telling the story, is saying, listen, this is your new identity. When you find your way back to Father God, wherever you're coming back from, this is your new identity. But the truth is, when I look at my own life, I realize that I'm a prodigal. There are many times that I've lived under the shadow of shame and and found myself battling with my true identity, carrying around all sorts of regrets, regrets from, from my past. And maybe as you sit here this morning, you find the same, that you realize that you've lost your identity too. You want to believe that you're a son, but this morning, your mind is convincing you more that you're a slave. That's why even after we find our way back home, we still need that fourth awakening. The fourth awakening that I'm talking about this week is the awakening to love. The awakening to love. The awakening to the idea that we truly are loved by God. That not only is he welcomes us home, but that he truly loves us. There's an author by the name of Brennan Manning, and he, he talks about it this way. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. You know, when we launched this series, we gave everyone a poker chip, and on one side it says the wager. And the idea that we got behind this uh, was from a a scholar who lived hundreds of years ago by the name of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal had an incredible encounter with God, and it was so real that he wanted his other friends to know the reality of God in their lives. And he would talk to these educated scientists and philosophers, and many of them didn't believe in God. So he would say, well, just indulge with me here. Take on a wager with me for 30 days. Just pray this prayer. And if at the end of 30 days, God doesn't answer that prayer, you've got nothing to lose. But if at the end of those 30 days, God does answer that prayer, you've got everything to gain. And this was the simple prayer that Pascal had his friends pray. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. 
God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. And for the last few weeks, people have been carrying these poker chips in their pockets. And, and I hope that every time you kind of feed it there, it, it encourages you to pray that prayer again. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. And then each week, we've kind of added another line to that prayer. And this week, if you uh, want to pray this prayer, here's what I want you to pray. God, if, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the awareness that I am your unconditionally loved child. That's the prayer I want God to answer in your lives this week. That you would come to that conclusion, that realization that you are God's unconditionally loved child. Because the truth is that many of us, whether we're still on a journey trying to figure out who God is and how he would fit in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Christ, but you're certainly open to that, you know. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ. You've been following him for a, a long time. Wherever you find yourself on that spiritual journey, many of us fall into this same trap. This, this same idea that the, um, um, the more we do for God, the more we help others, the more we read our Bible or pray or live the kind of lives that will please God, then the more he will love us. It's almost like a points system. We have to do more to gain more points, and the more points, we'll gain more love from God. And it actually works upside down as well. The, the more wrong we do, the more times we mess up, we lose points. And we find ourselves battling with guilt and shame because we, we feel like we're losing points with God. And we feel more like a, a thermostat. Our lives are just kind of regulating the amount that God truly loves us. And that's not the case at all. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that not only because he was the son of God, God in, in flesh, but he knew it because he'd seen it in his life. I love this. We're going to look at a, a, a quick uh, story here in the life of Jesus. It took place in, in Matthew chapter 3, and I think it's a great way of illustrating um, how much God truly loved Jesus and how much God loves every one of us. He's talking about Jesus' baptism. It happened very early on in Jesus' life. And um, Matthew describes it this way. He says, After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. There's another translation that says, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. God is voicing how much he loves his son. And I love this. And maybe you've heard that before, that story of when Jesus was baptized and the, the voice of God, um, you know, loudly proclaiming how much God loved his son. But I don't want to talk about the fact this morning that God voiced this. I want to talk about when he voiced this. This is really important for you and I to understand this morning. Because when God said this, it was at the time of Jesus' baptism. And here's why it's important you understand why that time is, is significant. Because at this time when Jesus was baptized, this was before Jesus had done anything. No miracles, no people healed, no water into wine, no fishes and loaves, no sermon on the mount, no death on the cross. Jesus hasn't even begun his public ministry. And yet God is still saying for all to hear, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is God affirming that his love for Jesus had nothing to do with what he had done or what he would do. And everything to do with who he 
was. And some of us get that turned around, don't we? we? We get caught up in the idea that the more we do, the more we'll feel loved by God. But God was saying to Jesus here, hey, this is my son who I'm well pleased. At this point, he's done nothing of what he's going to do. And yet still, I love him unconditionally. And then from that love and that acceptance and that identity of Jesus knowing who he was in the eyes of God, it was from that that he then did all that he did. And this is the father that Jesus is now describing to all listening in this story. He is saying this is the way that Father God feels about all of his children. There was a guy called Paul who came after Jesus and he wrote uh, many letters to different Christians in the, the new churches as the church was, was building back uh, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul totally understood what it meant to be forgiven and the grace of God in his life because Paul himself had been Saul, was his name before it was Paul, and he'd, he'd been a hateful, horrible person, committed to persecuting and even killing followers of Jesus. And then he has this revelation when, when Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and his life changes forever. And now he understands the grace and the love and the unconditional um, just outpouring of love that God wants to give. He understands what his identity is now. And he shares that with everyone. Listen to what he says. He writes to, to different followers of Jesus throughout that um, region. He writes to some Christians in Galatia. And he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That means this morning that you are God's child. You will always be God's child. You are home. Another time he writes to the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Paul's saying, your past is in the past. You are a new creation. You are home. Another time he writes to the Ephesians. He says, your sins have been forgiven. Your record is clean. You are home. Another time he writes to the Romans. In Romans 8.1, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul's saying, listen, you are not condemned. He's saying, it's time to say goodbye to shame because you are home. And finally, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 8.39. He says, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Paul's saying, listen, you can never, ever, ever be separated from God's love. You are home. As we continue our journey back to God, we must push back anything that tells us that we're not accepted by the Father. There's an author by the name of um, Henri Nguyen, and he wrote a book called Life of the Beloved. And he says this. He says, every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare yourself. Sorry, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity and held safe in an everlasting belief. That is our identity. 
Throughout every page you can read, whether it was Jesus or the disciples or Paul, it's confirming again and again and again that, that when God looks to us, he is the God in the story of the prodigal son. He is the father who says, I don't welcome you back as a slave or a hired hand. That's not who you are. You are my son, my beloved son. And this robe and that ring and those sandals, they're for you because that's who you are. That's your identity. My hope this morning is that when we walk out of here today, every one of us will walk confidently in the truth of our identity. That we won't feel like the son who came back to the father and said, Dad, I know you're pleased to see me and you're welcoming me home, but I don't deserve this. If you knew what I'd done, what I've said, where I've been. But the father says, listen, you're my son. You're welcome home. Do you know, it's incredible, isn't it? When we truly understand how the father views us, it changes who we are. When you truly get a grasp, when you truly start to realize that's how Father God views me, it actually changes the way you feel about yourself, the way you live your life, the thoughts you have. When you fully understand that, it changes who you are. I want to close with this story to just illustrate this. I think this is a great illustration of a difference the love of a father can make. There was a man named Rick, Rick Hoyt. He was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt in Boston, Massachusetts. Sadly, as a result of oxygen deprivation to, to Rick's brain at the time of his birth, he was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Back then in 1962, the doctors told them, listen, to be honest with you, mom and dad, your best bet would be to institutionalize him. He'll be nothing but a vegetable for the rest of his life. But these two loving parents couldn't bring themselves to do that. So they took Rick home with them. And despite all of his physical disabilities, they raised him and they loved him. And they raised him as they would any other child. And as time went on, even though he couldn't communicate with them, they felt like um, there was something more to Rick. That there was something inside that was going on. They said that they would be moving around the room and they would see him following, that his eyes would follow them around the room. They just felt that beneath the surface, he was comprehending, despite what the doctors had said. So even though they couldn't get him into a school, they started to work hard themselves to, to, to read to him and to, to teach him how to read and teach him letters and teach him all these things. And at the age of 11, they finally raised enough money to go to some engineers at a university called Tufts University. They said, is there some way you could design something or build something that we could attach to our son Rick's wheelchair? That maybe somehow he could communicate to us because we really believe he comprehends what's going on. We really believe he understands, but he just has no way of communicating. Well, I read about him and the engineers were skeptical. They said, to be honest, we, we really don't see that. We don't see anything going on in this young man's life. I don't think he really is comprehending the way you think he is. And, and apparently the mom and dad said, listen, we think you're wrong. Just, just do me a favor. Tell him, tell him a joke. One of the engineers tells Rick a joke and he starts to laugh. And I think, well, maybe he is comprehending. So they go to work and they come up with this, this system, this, this um, electronic device that they're able to attach to his wheelchair. And even though he's 
very physically disabled and he can't communicate at all, he's able to move a cursor around on a screen above a keyboard. And then in the headrest of his, of his wheelchair, he's able to, to tap. And whenever he taps with his head, it causes the cursor to hit one of those keys on the keyboard. So for the first time ever there with the engineers, he has the opportunity to communicate with these parents who have, who have raised him and taught him and tried to treat him like a normal boy. And they're going to discover now whether he can communicate, whether he can comprehend, whether he can understand. And they said there in front of the engineers, the very first thing he was able to type out on that keyboard, it wasn't, hi, mom, it wasn't, hi, dad, it was, go Bruins. It was the, the hockey team back in Boston at that time. They were in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So they realized not only does he comprehend, not only is he able to communicate, he understands what's going on. It was an eye-opening experience for the engineers and for mom and for dad. It changed their world. They were able to now communicate backwards and forwards with them. And at 15, Rick learned of a benefit race for a student who was paralyzed in an accident. And he asked his dad, Dad, could we run in that race? Could you push me and we'll raise money for this student who was paralyzed? It was actually a five-mile race, and, and Dick, his daddy, agreed to push Rick in the wheelchair. And by the time they were finished, they came in second to last. But he pushed Rick all the way through that race. That night after the race, Rick told his father, he says, Dad, today, when we were out running, it felt like I wasn't handicapped. And that changed something in his dad. Hearing how that son experienced that race, he said, then we're going to run. We're going to run a lot. And you may have seen a video of this father and son because there are many videos out there. There are some that sometimes get shared on Facebook. But this father and son began what was about 20 years of running together. In fact, over that time, they ran a thousand races. Team Hoyt, as they became known, right through to 2014, ran a thousand races. Included in the races they run were marathons, triathlons, and six Ironmans. All with dad running, swimming, biking, whatever he was doing, and pushing or pulling Rick with him. In fact, their last race was to be the 2013 Boston Marathon. And halfway through the race, the bombs went off and they couldn't finish, so they ran again the 2014 Boston Marathon. Someone asked Rick once in an interview, if you could do anything for your dad, your dad has pushed you in all of these races. If you could do anything for your dad, what would it be without any limits? He said, if I could do anything, it would be just one time that I could run and push my dad in the chair. That I could run and push him instead. But here's what I love about this story in the context of what we're speaking about today. People who know Rick, go home, Google him, look up on YouTube. You'll be fascinated by the stories and the videos of Team Hoyt and what they've accomplished together. Anyone who now meets Rick, they look at him like he's a superhero. Nobody thinks, oh, there's a handicapped kid. What a shame. No, in fact, they look to Rick for inspiration and motivation, thinking instead, that kid's amazing. Look at what he's done. Look at what he and his dad have accomplished. 
And when they tell his story, and when they share his video on the Facebook page, it's with excitement. And they're like, you need to see this. You need to see the life this young man has lived. Why are they inspired to tell his story? Because he had a father who loved him. He had a father who, when the doctor said, you know, the best bet would be to institutionalize him, didn't take that as an answer. He said, no, we love our son. It's going to be a lot of work over the years. But I love this boy too much to put him in an institution. And they raised him. In fact, Dick Hoyt loved his son so much that it changed his son's identity. Rick felt like his disability had disappeared. He inspires others now instead of people feeling bad about his handicap. His identity changed because his father loved him. And I want to tell you this morning that whether you've recently found your way back to God, like the prodigal in this story, or maybe you've been a follower of him for many, many years, but you still find yourself wrestling with your identity in him, I want to remind you of this this morning as we close out. Remember the robe. You don't need to prove yourself anymore. You can rest and know that you are home. Remember the ring. You don't have to worry anymore. He promises to never leave you. You are safe and you are home. Do you remember the sandals? You don't have to feel alone anymore. You are unconditionally loved and you are home. Let's pray together, shall we? God, this is such a wonderful story that Jesus told of the Father's love for the returning Son. And many of us here this morning at some point have found our way back to you. And even though, Lord, you've run out and you've embraced us and you've welcomed us home, for some of us, Lord, we still struggle with that identity. Like the son in the story, we say, but, but Dad, we're not welcome. We, should be, we shouldn't be your son. We should be a slave if you knew what we'd done. But God, you want us to awaken to the idea that we are loved. I pray this week, Lord, that people with that poker chip in their pocket would pray this prayer. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me and awaken in me the awareness that I am your unconditionally loved child. And God, I pray that that prayer will be answered this week that people will start to realize how much you love them. They'll sense the robe around their shoulders, the saddle on their feet, the, the, the ring on their finger, and they'll know that they truly are a son or a daughter of God. Because when we fully understand that, Lord, it really does change our identity. And we want our identity not to be found in the past or in the shame or in the guilt. Lord, we want our identity to be found in who you see in us how much you unconditionally love us. So I pray, God, this week that prayer will be answered. In Jesus' name, amen.